Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here, Friday edition. It's been pretty much a, uh, we had half a, I guess, Monday or Tuesday off, many of you. We're back in action on Tuesday this week, and it's officially 2024, and we're in full stride. Uh, No excuses now. You don't have to hold off and say, don't talk about the election. It's too early. People are going to get burned out. Forget it. This hour, we're going to be joined by Eli Lake, uh, Lake, uh, contributing editor of Commentary Magazine, columnist for The New York Sun. Uh, he's also got this re-education podcast, great knowledge of international relations and the political environment. Uh, we're also going to be talking to Admiral James Javidis, uh, one an esteemed author, the 16th Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. But first, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I can confirm that on January 4 at approximately 12 p.m. Iraq time, U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari. The strike also killed another Han member. It is important to note that the strike was taken in self-defense. Finally, returning the fire, U.S. forces take out Iran-backed militia leader right in Iraq. 110 attacks on our troops, on our troops, and the Houthi rebels shun our final warning. And yet another new kind of attack, another danger to commercial vessels and maybe our ships. Our game plan going forward has to be to get more aggressive. Number two. I've never seen just such a reliance on the polls. I think it's created a narrative rather than reflecting opinion. It's trying to shift opinion. And look, I think there's been an over-reliance on it. We're about to find out, Governor DeSantis, 2024, it ain't over. In fact, it's just beginning. As Donald Trump tries to make his commanding lead in the polls a series of decisive wins in the primaries. We look at the numbers that do, in fact, give his contenders hope as the Biden administration tries to hone in on a winning game plan in the midst of an epic spiral. Number one. The numbers are extraordinarily large. This is something that we are seeing throughout the hemisphere. We have increase in authoritarian regimes. We have more extreme weather events that are driving people from their homes. Yeah, that is uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. What an embarrassing interview last night. The border heating up on all ends with asylum seekers, political posturing and possible overall deal in the works behind the scenes. I have new information to bring you. We're going to look at the numbers as Mayorkas is looking at impeachment. Uh, and now more than just Fox is covering the disaster at the border. We all have to be concerned. Admiral James Stravitas joins us now. Admiral, great to have you back. Brian, good to be with you in the new year. Buckle up. 
I know. There's, on all phases. On the stuff we know, it's going to be challenging, let yeah. alone what we don't know. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, first off, I know you're usually at sea, but you also, you also worked in the uh, – you've had about every job there is, including working at the Pentagon under Donald Rumsfeld. Are you concerned yeah. to the border when you see what's coming through and, and how little we know and how little we're doing to stop it and screen it? Uh, of course I am. And any sensible observer has got to be deeply concerned. And, you know, everywhere I go, Brian, people want to talk about the big three. I know you have your big three every week, but the big three for me all the time are Ukraine, China, and the Middle East. And and then people say to me, but what really worries you? And I'll say, you know, we have a national security crisis at our southern border. And by the way, speaking of jobs, before I was the NATO commander, Brian, I think you know this, I spent three years as commander oh, of U.S. Right. Southern yeah. Command in charge of all military activities south of the U.S. I speak Spanish. I was born in South Florida. I know the region very well. And, yes, I am deeply concerned. So last night, um, the HHS secretary, I mean, the impeachment thing is spinning your wheels. It just brings out more scrutiny. But I do get the sense in flipping channels and, and talking to other people that there's a legitimate reform coming rapidly, and we could get a framework as early as Monday. I'll have more on this on the Saturday show. But uh, I think the Democrats are really concerned, if not uh, for legitimate uh, worry about the country, for their own political sanctity. After all, the president's got 26 percent approval rating on his handling of the border. Here is the Homeland Security secretary. Here's what he blames the push on. Cut one. The numbers are historic. The numbers are extraordinarily large. This is something that is not specific to the United States' southern border. This is something that we are seeing throughout the hemisphere and throughout the world. We have increase in authoritarian regimes. We have more extreme weather events that are driving people from their homes. We have poverty. And America is proving to be prosperous with more than 8 million jobs that need to be filled. We recovered from the COVID pandemic more rapidly than any other country. The standards in which we let people in, there's always going to be strife. There's always going to be challenges. We'll always be the best country with the most opportunity. Nothing changes. It's what we say to them at the border and what, they, what they're able to do to get in. Those are the people that go, go to be screened, let alone I think it's up to 3 million gotaways, which means we see the back of their heads as they run the other direction. You know, I'll leave the domestic political implications of all this to you and the team at Fox and the teams at CNN and MSNBC. There's a big conversation for the nation. We've got to start getting it right. But let me give you the national security challenge here. It is um, our inability to see that this is a multi-phase problem, Brian. In other words, um, Mayorkas is right to point out that there is a lot of fire out in the hemisphere and a lot of people driving, but a lot of people coming across that border are from China. They're from sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, this this is a wave that's moving toward us. Number two, that transit zone, as they come up through Central America and to Mexico, um, we have got to do more with Mexico. One of the reasons uh, this flow was reduced during the Trump administration was a much higher degree of cooperation on the Mexican side of the border. We tend to act as though uh, our border is 1,800 miles and on the other side of it is like a parking lot. 
uh, no, there's a country there. We have to work with them. If we did that effectively, I think that's where the Biden administration needs to up its game significantly. And then third and finally, your point here in the United States, once they do get across the border, uh, which we have to control, but if they do get across the border, then we need a more rational asylum system that simply does not constitute a catch and release program. So the bottom line is we got a lot to do on that border. And um, so far, the administration has uh, not taken the kind of steps necessary to knock this down. And frankly, it's going to hurt them. I'll close here politically, domestically, but also, Brian, internationally, because other nations are watching this. They see American weakness in this. That's what really concerns me. Um, Admiral, now to foreign policy, the Houthi, uh, Houthi rebels, hours after being given their final warning by the coalition led by us, uh, has now uh, launched a sea drone yesterday to attack our ships in the Red Sea after the U.S. Yep. Uh, going ahead and said, you better knock it off and did blow three, uh, three of their boats out of the water a few days ago. Where do we go from here? We know we're shooting them. General Keene said to, to me 90 minutes ago, he says we could eliminate the threat virtually right away. At what point do you make that decision? I would say right now. And uh, I'm old enough to remember, and you were probably in you know elementary school, but in the year 2000, we saw an al-Qaeda uh, event which struck one of our destroyers in Yemen uh, within a few miles of what we're seeing now. That was USS Cole, Brian. It was struck by uh, suicide bombers in a small boat, killed 17 sailors, almost sank that multi-billion dollar warship. We are one near miss away from one of these Houthi rockets hitting one of our Arleigh Burke destroyers and having a coal-like incident. And frankly, the the event you just described, the unmanned version of what happened to the coal uh, 24 years ago, uh, ought to give us real pause. So Jack Keane is exactly right. Um, We need to go ashore and we need to go there now. Um, I just uh, wrote a, a, a strong piece in Bloomberg saying, look, you've got to get this ashore. And I'll close with this, Brian. I know this because when I was Supreme Allied Commander in NATO, I spent four years fighting Somali pirates uh, off the coast of Africa, and we did everything defensively at sea, but we really didn't solve that problem until we went ashore, went after the pirate camps, destroyed them. We can do that. We know where the Houthis are. Uh, It's time to start striking them. I I personally think we're going to see strikes in the next 48 to 72 hours. There's really no other option left. What about the assassination of the uh, militia leader in uh, in in Baghdad uh, yesterday? Your reaction? Uh, positive. And, you know, let's face it, when we took out Soleimani a few years ago, the the, the great leader of the Revolutionary Guards and the Quds Force of Iran, uh, we took him out, as I recall, in Iraq also. And, um, you know, the Iranians understand that. Um, what, what Iran will do if we don't respond at that level, um, they will uh, continue to push and push. It's the old Russian dictum, uh, you know, when you're probing with a bayonet and you encounter mush, keep going. If you hit some steel, stop. Um, killing this leader now 
just like when we killed Soleimani a few years ago, uh, is necessary. It's not sufficient yet. And back to where we were a moment ago, I think we're going to have to go ashore and show the Iranians some steel going after their proxy Houthi pirates, who we ought to stop calling Houthis and Houthi pirates. It sounds mildly comical. They're Iranian pirate forces. We ought to go after them ashore. Are they running Yemen? Uh, Not quite. Um, They have been, to my eyes, surprisingly successful in uh, obtaining much of the country. And they're a rebel force against the government of Yemen. And here's the reason, Brian, no surprise, the Iranians. They've been providing them with weapons, uniforms, training. They've organized them. They guide them. And if you watch the videos of these Houthi rebels uh, taking down a merchant ship, they look like Navy SEALs. They fly in on a high-end helicopter. They rappel down very professionally. They're completely kitted out head to foot with all the advanced gear. They move with real military precision. Hey, you ever see the movie uh, Captain Phillips? Remember those pirates? They were yeah. guys in flip-flops with rusty ak 47s That's not the Houthis. They're Iranian military forces. They're very serious, and we need to deal with them as a serious military threat. So ISIS sees an opportunity, uh, reportedly. Uh, they took credit for it. And during yeah. Soleimani's, uh, marking four years since his uh, assassination, since his death, with a huge crowd on hand, they have two explosions that kill close to 100, wound over 100. Uh, and it's pretty clear it's not Israel. Even Iran seems to acknowledge no. that. So why would, why would ISIS, you, you see this as an opportunity? And what are the ramifications of them doing this? Yeah, remember the basics here. ISIS is a Sunni organization. And, of course, Iran is the center of the Shia split uh, of the Muslim faith. And this is, Brian, this goes back to Catholicism and Protestantism in the 15th century. This is the wars of the Reformation in that religion. So uh, the Islamic State sees how Iran is, frankly, stretched pretty thin right now, focusing its assets on supporting Hezbollah, supporting Hamas, supporting the Houthis, attacking the U.S. at sea and ashore, and Islamic State sees a window to go in and strike a blow against this, what they perceive as an apostate mm-hmm. theocracy that is corrupting Islam. This is really a, a gang war inside Islam, and the uh, Islamic State took full advantage, uh, and, and frankly, I never thought that was Israel. It's not Israel style to go in and take out a ton of civilians in a in Iran. They're going to do precision mm-hmm. uh, strikes and assassinations in Iran, but not mass killings like that. Admiral, have you heard a good plan for when the war ends in Gaza? <laughs> have you heard anything that, that you could sign off on? I have not. And in fact, it's going in the other direction. You know, maybe a month ago, there was some talk about trying to build an organization that would include some elements of the Palestinian Authority, maybe some Arab League, maybe United Nations. That I could sort of see that shaping in a in a reasonable direction. But the Palestinians have walked away from it. The Arab League has said they're not interested. UN is, as usual, disorganized and it's the UN. Um, and now Israel is talking about trying to put together uh internal 
Palestinian groups, clans, families uh, that could be helpful in controlling the Gaza Strip. But bottom line, no, that plan is nowhere. And it's a, this is a good illustration for Israel. It's easy to get into a war, and they had no choice here. This is a war of defense against these terrorists, Hamas. But the hard part is always getting out. Ask Jack Keane, is it harder to get into a war yeah. or out of a war? It's going to be hard. Uh, what's your next book? Uh, 2054, it's a sequel to 2034, which you were very nice to review. Uh, 2034 was about a war with China in the year 2034. 2054 comes out in early March, Brian, mm -hmm. and it's a book about, wait for it, artificial intelligence and geopolitics. It adds artificial intelligence to this turbulent mix where discussing. I think it's a timely, timely book. You're our generation's Nostradamus. That's what it's turning out to be, Admiral. <laughs> you are predicting the future and it's coming out correct. That's why people yeah. look at that book 2034 as a handbook. Admiral James yeah, Cervitas, thanks so much. Have a great weekend, sir. You too, Brian. Talk to you next week. Bye. All right. Uh, listen, one 408 7669 So much to discuss. We're just getting started here. And don't forget, we're also uh, going to continue this conversation Saturday at 9 o'clock Eastern time on One Nation on Fox News Channel. So keep it here. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. I mean, I, I've never seen just such a reliance on the polls. I think it's created a narrative. Um, rather than reflecting opinion, it's trying to shift opinion. And look, I ran in 2022, and I was very critical of the polls because I had polls saying that I was in the uh, you know two, three-point race with my Democrat opponent uh, four or five points, even two weeks before, and I won by 20. And we knew we were going to win big, uh, but that was just not what was reflected there. So I think there's been an over-reliance on it. And when you're not talking about the underlying issues, how do you shift the sentiment you shift the sentiment by having contrast uh, about the direction of the country and about the different issues. And there's been very little of that, of course, because he hasn't been willing to debate and whatnot. And that is uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. I was able to talk, catch up with him last night, uh, and he's, you're going to hear the whole interview today uh, next uh, at a different hour. Uh, so you're going to hear that interview. I think you'll really like it. I know he just also did a town hall last night, and there's a lot of breaking news uh, in and around the league. And also... If anyone thinks this is over, whether you could be the biggest Trump fan or the biggest detractor, it doesn't matter. Uh, Kimberly Strassel, who nobody thinks is Liz Cheney, is, is not an anti-Trumper by any stretch. I'm going to give you some clips when we get back. And I'm going to show you what she wrote today in the Wall Street Journal. They let you know that this is way too early for anyone to be uh, dancing in the end zone. And I think Trump knows that. I, I absolutely think he knows that. But right now, he is up big in Iowa, up big in New Hampshire, up big in South Carolina. Momentum is one thing. But giving too much credence to the polls is another. And I just want to caution everyone ahead of time on this so no one says cheating on the election, someone's uh, stuff in the ballot box. 
Just you're giving too much credit to the polls. I'm not. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. And as long as we sit back and continue to let these proxies do what they're doing and ignore Iran, Iran doesn't care that there's proxy casualties. They're going to keep pushing them to be aggressive, and that's going to continue. You would thought that the country and every administration after 9-11 wouldn't need a primer on how to handle terrorist groups in Iran in particular, but it looks like this administration does. They think by ignoring some of these attacks of over 100, they'll go away. They never do. No one has to tell Eli Lake that. He covers all this stuff. He's contributing editor of commentary, columnist for the New York Sun, host of a great podcast called Reeducation. Eli Lake, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Brian. Eli, Happy the, to be here. Yeah, the, the same to you. The least surprising thing is that these militias are, are relentless in taking shots at us. And the, oh. it is surprising that we're, we're not answering back until the, until the attack yesterday on a militia leader. Well, that's that's certainly true. And even though it's good to see um, a response, you know, I think that it's 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 high time that the Biden administration understands that the return address when we are attacked by Iran's proxies should be Iran. And it seems like right now the only party in the Middle East willing to, to sort of take that to heart is the Israelis, who about a week and a half ago, I guess, um, took out one of their uh, senior uh, Revolutionary Guard commanders in Syria that was supplying Hezbollah. But there is a network that the Iranians have throughout the Middle East. There are important strategic targets within Iran. And I think that there has to be a message that you're no longer going to be able to hide behind your proxies and make it seem like there are six or five or four different wars. It's one big war, and it's Iran versus the uh, civilized world. Yesterday, there was a report that uh, Khomeini, however you say his name, said to essentially hold your fire when it comes to the U.S., uh, be more judicious when it comes to attacking us. I guess they realize we might even this administration might be at their breaking point. Well, um it's interesting to see what happens with that report, but the Iranians have been trying to sort of steadily escalate. So it's an interesting statement that, you know, if, if he's that would well, that would mean, I guess, a, a, a new strategy by the Iranians. And we'll wait to see if it really is a new strategy. Um, yeah, here's what the New York listen, Times said to... specifically. It says yeah. the Supreme Allied commander, uh, the Supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, ordered the military commanders to, quote, Exercise strategic patience vis-a-vis the United States on an unspecified date, citing unspecified sources familiar with the internal regime discussions. Well, I mean, if that is in fact the case, I'm just saying that we've seen the behavior of Iran's proxies and that they have not stopped attacking U.S. uh, targets. I mean, I would just say any target in the Red Sea that is for international shipping is of concern not just to America, but the entire global economy. So it's amazing to me that we have allowed this kind of escalation to continue, effectively kind of strangling, you know, the the commerce of the world in one of the most important waterways. So that is the reason the New York, the U.S. Navy was created. It is one of our core strategic interests. At a certain point, there has to be a kind of military strategy to prevent the Houthis in, in Yemen from uh, continuing to take away the Red Sea. Which were perfect. Back then, we were a brand new nation. 
without even a president yeah. when we were being attacked. Then we stand up a Navy, and in, the mi- in, in mid-training, we're doing more than Europe's doing at the time, and we end up squeezing, which would now owe us Libya, to the point where we get our hostages back, and the, and the fighting cease, and they stop targeting us. We don't even learn from our own history. It's insane. Now, That's an incredible story. I'm glad you brought that up. By the way, I think that was like one or two what would later we know as Marines that were able to pull that mission off. Incredible. Yeah, I wrote about it in Thomas Jefferson, the Tripoli Pirates. Um, yeah. So, quick thing, uh, the Houthi rebels in particular, it looks like they got a warning yesterday not to conduct any more operations and let the commercial vessels go through. There's going to be reprisals. You know what their answer was? Uh, their answer was uh, they sent a unmanned surface vessel, looks like to be an unmanned drone, uh, right through and almost hit one of our vessels, and there were commercial vessels still streaming through. So they don't care. They are daring us to hit them. According to General Jack Keane, he told me we know exactly where they are and where to hit. We're just not yeah. doing it. We now we now we got our own verbal red line. I mean, if it's, if 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 the report from Iran is correct, but more importantly, you know, I mean, I am very dubious of the administration's rationale, which is that if they hit the Houthis inside of Yemen, that will somehow disturb this delicate ceasefire between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. The Saudis understand they they have as much to lose in many ways as as the United States does if the Red Sea is made inoperable. So I'm very curious about this claim that, you know, their hands are tied because of this diplomatic initiative. I, I don't I don't believe it. I think a lot of it has to do with their relations with Saudi Arabia. They said that they've worked very hard and been left alone to work out some type of detente with the Houthis. And they said, just leave it alone. You know, you, you basically took our patriot battles right. out. You took them off the terror list. You called me a pariah nation. So to stop the rocketing into Saudi Arabia proper, they, they want to make a deal. And now they're concerned we're going to go in there and blow up their deal. Well, I mean, it's, it's, well, that, it, was, it, was a, it was a terrible policy that, that Biden sort of adopted in his first two years. Um, but they still haven't fully reversed it. And, I mean, you have to wonder in the back of their heads, do they think it's possible to have a, a nuclear deal or to revive the nuclear deal with Iran? I can't see that happening after October 7. Um, I don't think the Iranians are particularly interested in it, and I just think that sometimes you just have to take no for an answer. You know what I mean? So right. I hope that, the, that, that we're going to see some more, some, some more serious kind of policy changes from Biden, they have been pretty good when it comes to supporting Israel. That's important. Um, I don't think the Obama administration would have been this supportive. But at the same time, they need to come up with something on Iran because they don't have anything right now. And it's just in drift mode. Senator Elizabeth Warren has joined uh, with the squad members and Bernie uh, Sanders in condemning Biden administration for not putting constraints on Israel, saying that they haven't been precise enough in the way they're waging the war in Gaza. So this is a internal uh, fight that's been fascinating to watch, let alone the staffers in the White House that are protesting their president they work for. I would urge Senator Warren and Senator Sanders and the members of the squad to read a piece that is published today in the free press by a very, very brave woman in Gaza talking about the treatment of Hamas, of her father, who is an imam. He refused to continue during this hopeless war that Hamas thrust Gaza into to preach this sort of brain poison of resistance. 
What did Hamas do? They sent 20 thugs to his home, beat him, and kidnapped him in front of his family. And this account is now in the free press. Anybody can read it. I highly recommend it. That's who we're dealing with. The way to think about ending the violence in Gaza is to reach out to Gazans who know full well, not all of them, of course, but many of them, that the people who purport to rule them are a death cult that will bring nothing but misery to them. That's the, fun, that's the way to look at this going forward politically. Instead, what you have is effectively an element of the left in America and the West that just parrots the propaganda of Hamas. They start a war. They hide among their own civilians. They steal the aid that is intended for their own people. And this is all the fault of Israel. And I know that that's maybe not what Elizabeth Warren intends when she talks about restrictions on an Israeli aid, but she is just playing into that narrative, and she needs to understand that she's helping no one. She's not helping Israel. She's not helping Gaza. You have this great story about, you know, everyone's more concerned and cognizant of foreign investment in our institutions, whether it's Chinese students pretending to be students who are really spies or yeah. hold their family hostage if they don't produce for the, uh, for the Chinese government. Regardless, you point out the relationship between Qatar and Texas A&M. What concerns you? Well, what concerns me there is that we finally, I finally got a chance to see this really intricate contract between the Qatar Foundation, which is effectively Qatar, the government, the, for, the royal family, and one of our best engin- nuclear engineering schools, frankly, engineering schools in the country, Texas A&M. They have a well-earned, re- very good reputation in this field. And... You know, the deal says that any of the intellectual property, any of the research, any of the blueprints, any of the plans that are generated at the Texas AMU campus in Doha, Qatar, belongs to the Qatar Foundation. So this is like a contract that looks like an act of philanthropy. We're going to open a new campus in the Middle East for this really important school. But it is a play to purchase some of the valuable kind of, you know, fruits of research from some of our best, from one of our best universities. And considering the fact that Qatar, you know, it hosts an American military base, but it's a frenemy nation. They, you know, provided the safe harbor for Hamas leaders. They are very close with the Iranians. They share the large, the world's largest oil field with Iran. Um, this is a huge national security risk, and it's not just my opinion. That is the view of the experts that I spoke to who uh, have, you know, former intelligence analysts and people who've looked at this. So it's a real threat, and it's something that I don't think is just anomaly to Texas A&M. It's a problem throughout higher education. Some of our most prestigious schools have partnered with foreign countries, and in some cases, like Qatar, countries that don't have our best interests in mind. And so we have to be. I think we have to scrutinize these things for who owns the intellectual property when it comes to things like engineering, biology, mathematics, quantum computing. This is the future, and uh, do we want? rogue states to have access to, you know, no. the fruits of the research in our country. No. And, you know, I love our capitalist nature. Got it. I'm a, I'm a Texas A&M. I'm president of Texas A&M, and I want to bring maximum profit. So the Chinese come oh, in, and they've got to pay all this tuition. Uh, and the cutters come in, and they go, open up all these schools. Well, I'm going to look great. Well, now we're going to need federal regulation that has to save these administrations from themselves and keep our, uh, keep our interests in mind. These countries are using every way possible uh, to steal our intellectual property, and this seems to be the latest way that you exposed. I don't want you to expose your sources, but how? Do, when did you realize this was a story? 
Well, this is something that a few people have been looking at kind of in the NGO space. And one of one of them is a sort of boutique law firm called the Zakhor Legal Institute. Last year, they finally won, after five years of litigation, a lawsuit that required for the Qatar Foundation and Texas A&M to disclose this contract. So when they said that, you know, would you like to take a look at this? I said, sure, that sounds like a good story. And that's um, and so that's how this came about. But it also is telling why would the Qatar Foundation fight to effectively keep because Texas A&M is a public school in Texas, you know, this arrangement secret from the people of Texas. I mean, there's there are Texas right to know laws similar to the, the federal laws. And, you know, I think if it was up to Texas A&M, they would have said, OK, yeah, you can look at it. Here's what we did. But the Qataris themselves said, no, we're going to fight this. And they, they, they fought it for five years, and they finally lost. Incredible. Uh, Eli Lake, uh, thanks so much. We'll check out your podcast, uh, Reeducation Podcast, as well as your columns in uh, commentary, as well as the New York Sun. Eli, thank you. Thank you. All right. Uh, that's going to be the next area. I would love to hear a presidential candidate talk about that. Foreign investment in our institutions. I know people are worried. I know the private institutions are in major competitions. I see some colleges that I thought were fine go belly up. But that also makes them vulnerable to foreign investment to prop them up. They always want something in return and always don't really want our interest outside a handful of allies. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll come back with your calls. I want them. one 408 Don't move. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I dealt with China every single day at the United Nations. They never saw us as a competitor. They always saw us as an enemy. We've got to look at them the way they look at us. So how do we take on China? We start by stopping the sale of any of our U.S. land and taking back what they already purchased. What she is saying is a total fraud, Brian. I mean, she was the number one Republican governor in America for bringing China into her state of South Carolina. They gave China land five miles from Fort Jackson, a military base. She's on video in front of the Chinese flag uh, for a Chinese company in South Carolina saying she works for them now. She said China was a friend of ours. And so that's her record. So now she's trying. She knows that's deadly in a Republican primary. She knows Republican voters want us to be tough on China. So now she's changing the rhetoric. But I already banned China from buying land in Florida. So that is uh, Governor Haley talking about what she did, and then Ron DeSantis answering last night. I interviewed him last night. You're going to hear it later uh, in a different hour during the show, the Friday edition. We're going to put it online, get com on the podcast. If you can't listen to all three hours or you're getting uh, certain hours at certain times, that's a national syndication. I don't want to uh, alienate anyone or confuse anyone, but that shows you how uh, how directly they're going at each other. And they're going to go directly at each other in a debate. they got town halls on our channel next week individually, and Donald Trump will be going head-to-head with the debate on CNN. So that's going to be interesting. So uh, I, want to bring you to, uh, I want to bring you to the horse race. Keep in mind, as much as we look at the polls, I don't think they're ridiculous. I don't think they're not based in any types of trend of momentum, but they're not gospel. They're not finished primaries. I think people are getting caught up in it. So that's what Kimberly Strassel writes about in the Wall Street Journal today. He goes, this is still a race. 
Uh, Trump hovers around 50 percent on most of the early contests. This is better than 2016 when he struggled to score 35 or 40 percent in the popular vote in many primaries in mid-April. But it's hardly a lock on the electorate. Trump is essentially an incumbent, yet half the early state electorate wants somebody else. The number is likely higher. Mid-December, Iowa poll, insider advantage, has Trump at 49 percent. But 36 percent of respondents said they remain open. And another 7% were undecided. Moreover, many of these who aren't in the Trump camp took or look eager for a change. A recent Emerson poll found that DeSantis supporters, 44%, have a second choice of Nikki Haley, only 28% for Trump. And among Haley's other voters, 46% have a second choice of DeSantis. And I put it out there. I don't want anyone blindsided and saying, wow, you know, you told me that Trump was winning by 30 points. Why is it so close? And I worry that people are going to go, okay, these caucuses are corrupt. These primaries are screwed up. No one, uh, someone's stuff in the ballot box. There's, uh, there's harvesting. Uh, Democrat, I, I don't want the controversy for, because people thought it was going to go one way and the outcome was totally different. Understood? Understood. Good. One real risk Trump has, she goes on to write, that he substantially underperforms in those Iowa polls, projecting more vulnerability than strength. DeSantis is polling second at about 19%. On the real clear average, but the poll in 2016 notably underrated Ted Cruz and Rubio's IR support and overrated Trump's support. And Trump did not win in 2016. That's probably a better example because he had no he had no primary competition in 2020 because he had the job already. And uh, keep in mind, too, there's a end up there's a poll done by Gallup to say, basically, who do you like better, Republicans or Democrats? In 2008. Donald, the last year of George W. Bush, it was plus 14 for Democrats. Last year of the first term of Obama, plus five for Democrats. 2016, plus five for Democrats. Trump did win. 2018, plus six for Democrats. 2020, plus five for Democrats. 2022, equal. And now in 2023, plus two Republicans. So it's just too close to say anyone can't be beat. Head-to-head, Haley still does better than Biden against Biden. But DeSantis and Trump also beat Biden. I love it, right? It's so interesting. And then you figure in the court cases is brand new, and in a week and a half, we'll get a result. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest-growing radio talk show, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, around the world. We're finishing our first week of 2024. So glad you're with us. It's going to be a banner year for the show and hopefully for you individually. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, he has great hopes still in Iowa. You watch him at the town hall last night, formidable. He will not be thrown by CNN or anybody else. He's very good on the stump, very smart uh, guy with an Ivy League education, by the way. So he's got something to sell and not close to quitting. Uh, and we'll discuss that. And you'll hear from him. And Nick Giordano is in the studio. He's a campus reform guy. He's also a professor himself, uh, political science at Suffolk Community College. And a lot of the unrest that we're seeing in these things that have been unmasked about colleges, he's been talking about on his podcast, which is uh, the PAS report. Before we get to Nick, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I can confirm that on January 4 at approximately 12 p.m. Iraq time, 
U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari. The strike also killed another Han member. It is important to note that the strike was taken in self-defense. Right. Uh, they've been rocking us for about 70 times, and we hit him what, three times? Finally returning fire, U.S. forces take uh, out Iran-backed militia leader uh, right in Baghdad. We'll discuss it. Number two. I've never seen just such a reliance on the polls. I think it's created a narrative rather than reflecting opinion. It's trying to shift opinion. And look, I think there's been an over-reliance on it. The latest on Nikki Haley, Governor Ron DeSantis, and Donald Trump. You're going to be surprised where he is going to recruit supporters. Number one. The numbers are extraordinarily large. This is something that we are seeing throughout the hemisphere. We have increase in authoritarian regimes. We have more extreme weather events that are driving people from their homes. Yeah, right. Uh, Bad excuses and no one's buying. The border heating up on all ends with asylum seekers, political posturing and possible overall deal uh, in the works. We're going to look at the numbers and Mayorkas' future uh, because he's just been an embarrassment to this country, as is our border. On a different note, Nicholas Giordano back back with us on the show. Uh, Nick, on the past, we've had John talking about academic things. And, man, what are your thoughts watching those three presidents talk two weeks ago and the fallout since? Well, it's to me, it amazes me because it really shouldn't be that hard to condemn the calls for genocide against Jewish people. That That's not a difficult thing to do. And yet these college administrators stumbled over themselves. I think Claudine Gay of Harvard was the most interesting case because she lasted over a month in her position. And there were a lot of people, over 500 professors, as well as the Harvard board, signed a letter of support after the congressional testimony and after 50 accusations of plagiarism against her. And yet they still supported her as president. So that's the remarkable case, because what it represents is the entire problem in higher education, where you've seen this diversity, equity, inclusion model really take over instead of academic standards, academic integrity, meritocracy. And unfortunately, it diminishes our profession. It's an insult to our profession. But you predicted this, and you think things are going to change for the better because of some stats that have come out that is alarming to the uh, the future of colleges in America. Correct. Well, first, the DEI effect is real. Okay, we are witnessing the real-world consequences today where we see that 38% of Americans believe patriotism, hard work, and faith are important. Compare that to 70% of Americans that felt those were important 25 years ago. You have standards that have been routinely lowered. In New York State, for instance, the New York State Board of Regents redefined what proficiency means after students perform twice below the national average. They redefined proficiency to meet what they deem as the new normal, so it shows what little faith they have in the student body. In Oregon, for instance, They passed a resolution to suspend graduation, high school graduation requirements where students have to demonstrate a proficiency in reading, writing, and mathematics until 2029. So we've seen standards drop out. You have one in five Gen Zers that now have a sympathetic view of bin Laden. 30% of them believe that bin Laden's ideas are a good contribution to the world. I mean, that's astounding. And 72% support uh, the Palestinians over the Israelis for people under 30. Correct. And and you see that a lot of the protests that we're witnessing are actually pro-Hamas protests. They're anti-Israel pro-Hamas protests. So we see the destructive forces that are taking place and and what higher education has bred that filtered out to other parts of society where you have 
corporations, with their DEI departments. And it costs companies billions of dollars in market value when they put in these DEI programs. But we are seeing a great American pushback start. And that's the important thing. You have 62 percent of Americans have little confidence in higher education today. Fifty six percent of Americans are now considering whether it's worth the cost to obtain a four year degree. You have nearly 50 percent of corporations that have stated that they are dropping four year degree requirements in 2024. States like Virginia, New Jersey, uh, Pennsylvania have dropped four year degree requirements for their positions. You have the donor class that has now pulled back their funding. So the message is crystal clear. The colleges need to clean up their act. They need to get back to the idea of of academic integrity and producing productive citizens and informed citizens or else they're going to face a really tough next four years. So I just asked you this before we hopped on the air. You're a political science professor. Correct. So when you got hired at Suffolk, did they know who you voted for? Did they ask you if you were conservative or liberal? No, there there were no questions like that. Did they tell you what your curriculum should be? No, it's a different mindset at the community college because they're more in tune with reality. It's not that four-year university bubble where everyone So you everyone think you would have been asked background. if it was like a Hofstra or an NYU? Absolutely. Uh, I have little doubt about that. They may not ha- have asked so overtly, but they do tend to look at political leanings, hence the reason that when you look at most college campuses, take sociology, for instance – Number of left-leaning professors compared to right-leaning professors in sociology is about 66 to 1. If you look at anthropology, it's about 56 to 1. If you look at history, it's about 13 to 1. If you look at political science, it's not too bad, 6 to 1. So we're still outnumbered. Right. Uh, but at the community college, it's a little bit different. But you still have to deal. It's not to say that there's no far-left elements that exist within a community college. Plus, if we look at Suffolk Community College, it still is part of the SUNY umbrella. So earlier this year, you and I spoke about it, where the the SUNY powers that be decided that they wanted to put DEI requirements into every degree program. Regardless of what you're majoring in, students now have to go through this DEI indoctrination program. Uh, As far as the classroom goes... Like a competency on how white people suck. Correct. I mean, that's what DEI is. It's it's instilling the victimhood mentality... It's rooted in anti-Americanism, and it's just simply lumping people into groups. And if you look at DEI itself, it's actually racist because it has such low expectations of minorities. And we see it all the time when it comes to these standards. Listen to the review after Claudine Gay resigned after being multiple uh, examples of her plagiarism, let alone her testimony. Listen. These plagiarism allegations uh, where Claudine Gay has had to issue corrections, um, multiple corrections. Now, we should note that um, Claudine Gay has not been accused of stealing anyone's ideas in any of her writings. Uh, She's been accused of sort of more like uh, copying uh, other people's writings without attributions. I can't (laughs) even imagine what she's had to face. There are people who have come straight out and said that they believe that Claudine Gay, you know, before the plagiarism allegations even came out, that they believe Claudine Gay was only appointed because she's black, because she's a woman, but especially because she's black. Why are these elite colleges capitulating to it and essentially making it so uncomfortable for these women leaders that they have to step down to be replaced by white men? And, and of course, the University of Pennsylvania president left right away without plagiarism allegations. But of course, she leaves after weeks of allegations weathers the storm, and then resigns because she's black. 
And that's absolutely uh, right. If you look at Elizabeth uh, McGiff, I believe it is, but it was four days later she resigned from University of Pennsylvania, yet Claudine Gay is nearly a month later. McGill. Uh, uh, McGill. And those that want to defend Claudine Gay, uh, it's really embarrassing to themselves. I mean, listen, plagiarism is a cardinal sin within academia. And any one of my students that I catch plagiarizing fail the course immediately. If I caught them in over 50 incidents of plagiarism, they face academic disciplinary hearings, which could lead to expulsion or suspension. Shouldn't we have at least the same standards for a college president, but actually higher so, standards so for a college I, president? If I'm at Harvard and I got caught plagiarizing, I would say, give me the chance to go fix it, like you did the former president who was still on the faculty. But you overall, did this was a wake-up call to people that aren't politically oriented. Uh, Nick, I, uh, I know you, you think things will change. Do you think things will change in terms of the, the political positions among those who go to those schools? Or do you think things, do you think things will balance out, they'll be more accountable, and this anti-Americanism will cease? I think that the colleges and the university systems have to change. They have no choice. If they don't change... The entire college landscape shifts within four or five years, and a lot of the mid-tier schools will be done. Uh, Enrollment declines are already happening simply because of age demographics. Now you have people that don't want to rack up tens of thousands of dollars in student debt, so they're learning trades or they're going to community colleges, and they don't want their children and students don't want to be indoctrinated anymore. So, yes, they have Mm -hmm. to change. Whether or not they change, it remains to be seen because – as we stated with Claudine Gay, you still had 500 faculty members actually supporting her, telling her not to step down. And the second, Including the former president of the United States, Barack Obama. Correct. And the second we accept plagiarism as an acceptable academic standard, we no longer have an education system. That, that's it. It's game over for the education system. I do believe that the donor class and the corporations have the biggest role to play because if they're moving away from four-year degrees and the donor class isn't providing the funding – well, when money is involved, that's when colleges begin to change their behaviors. Check him out on his uh, own podcast, the PAS Report, Nicholas Giordano, and try to take his class if you're in, in the New York area. Uh, Suffolk Community College, a political science professor, but he's also a great uh, commentator. He's going to be at a town hall January 9th with Brett and Martha in Des Moines, Iowa, right? Oh, no, you're not. Uh, that's something else. Uh, that is, I read the broad line. Sorry, Nick. Roger Sanders coming up next. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Joining us now, Governor Ron DeSantis from somewhere I imagine in Iowa. Am I correct, Governor? Yeah, you know, the it, it's great. Uh, the great folks up here. But normally when I see Iowans in January, it's down in like Marco Island when they're visiting to get out of the yes. cold. I'm up here. How are you handling it? The, it's been in the 20. You know, it's interesting, though. I, I was in Sioux Center, which is northwest Iowa last night. And it was 26 degrees, and I, and I was going into the event, and I was backstage with some people, and I'm like, you know, as a Florida guy, there's no wind right now, so I can handle 26. And they're like, you know what, you're becoming a Midwesterner because that's how they rationalize it. Yeah, maybe 26 degrees, but if it's not real windy. So we haven't really had time. We haven't really had a time where the wind has really been whipping. But the, the forecast for caucus tonight is going to be like maybe negative in terms of what it's going to be. So, so it's going to be really, really cold. And so fortunately, you know, our supporters are true believers, so they're going to come out. But uh, I, I definitely think it is going to be somewhat of a task uh, to turn out on that night. So there's been about uh, one of the first things you said to me is when I go to Iowa at the end, I will be going, I will hit every county. 
you did it. Plus, uh, what county uh, worries you the most? What are you the most concerned about? Where are you going to close out? We're going to be all over. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, there's different media markets here. You know, Omaha, Nebraska covers part of, of Iowa. You have the, the Sioux City area has got a media market, Cedar Rapids. Uh, you have southeast Iowa. Des Moines, of course, is, um, is the biggest market in the more center of the state. So we're going to be everywhere. Uh, my wife is actually out. Casey is out uh, doing stuff. And so it's interesting. Uh, one of the PACs is running an ad with her where she talks about, you know, how I really supported her through her cancer journey. This was something that she did in the governor's race last year or two, uh, 2022, and they repurposed it. And, and it's really resonating with Iowans. So she's now doing stuff and she's getting some pretty big crowds of people because they've seen, they've seen her on TV. They want to meet her. And she does a good job of flipping voters uh, to, to, to support. So she's dividing. We're dividing and conquering. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got our kids here. I'm going to have to go back to Florida at the beginning of the week next week because I got to deliver the state of the state address because our legislative session starting. Um, but then we'll be back up here through caucus night. And then on, after the caucus results, we're going to fly to New Hampshire and we'll be in New Hampshire the entire time until the primary eight days. Uh, and then we'll go to South Carolina, do kind of an opening swing and then probably finally make it back to Florida for a few days just to kind of get get recuperated a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's um, I mean, we're we're high octane right now. So I want you to hear with Governor Haley. You've taken out uh, you guys are taking a lot of ads to attack each other. I think it's seven million to one million um, attacking you to one million against Trump. Here's what she said in uh, uh, Milford, New Hampshire, about uh, about China, about selling land. Listen, cut three. I dealt with China every single day at the United Nations. They never saw us as a competitor. They always saw us as an enemy. We've got to look at them the way they look at us. So how do we take on China? We start by stopping the sale of any of our U.S. land and taking back what they already purchased. And you did that, didn't you? What she is saying is a total fraud, Brian. I mean, she was the number one Republican governor in America for bringing China into her state of South Carolina. They gave China land five miles from Fort Jackson, a military base. She's on video in front of the Chinese flag uh, for a Chinese company in South Carolina saying she works for them now. She said China was a friend of ours. And so that's her record. So now she's trying. She knows that's deadly in a Republican primary. She knows Republican voters want us to be tough on China. So now she's changing the rhetoric. But I already banned China from buying land in Florida. We ejected them out of our university. She didn't do that when she was governor. They had Confucius Institutes, all these other things. And so she's trying to change. She doesn't really have the core convictions. But here's why voters aren't going to buy it, because she has a track record of being very deferential to China. The people that are funding her on Wall Street and the, the liberals in California, they make money in China. She's not going to stand up to them economically because that's going to potentially hurt some of these fat cats. So she's not somebody that's going to be able to get the job done. Um, and so I think people mm-hmm. will see that. Governor, uh, I heard you're getting pushback. You said China will not, uh, Chinese companies will not be allowed to buy land in Florida. We understand that. I understand you're getting major pushback from real estate associations saying, hey, they were our best clients. How are you handling that? Because a lot of times they are your supporters. Brian, what's in the best interest of this country? I get some people. First of all, 
there's not a they're they're, they're not we, we we have we do have some foreign countries a lot of south america a lot of those people that you know some of these very wealthy people in the western hemisphere in miami and stuff china is not uh uh necessarily uh it, it's not integral to our economy at all i've done no china outreach since i've been governor uh we i know some of my predecessors have done deals uh, with them we have not since right. i've been governor so we have the strongest economy of all 50 states uh, we helped engineer that with zero reliance on China. That's what it's got to be. Our national security is more important. Uh, we don't want to be dependent on China for these things. So, yes, there's all. But this is how you determine who's going to lead and who's not. There's always going to be people who may be able to make some money off some stuff. But are you going to stand up for the folks? or Are you going to cave? Nikki Haley caved on this issue. Uh, I am not. I'm going to stand strong. And the ACLU is suing us over this. They say somehow it's discrimination to say the CCP can't buy land in your state, that's just common sense. So we got more of our interview with Governor Ron DeSantis. Some of the topics we're going to be talking about, the counties are where he's most within Iowa, and what will his campaign focus on to get the ultimate victory in the caucus, or at least get close enough to get some momentum for New Hampshire. How to take on Haley, which he's very good at doing. Don't move. This is the Brian Kilme Show, Friday edition. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, I prematurely promoted this before, uh, and that is uh, that Ron DeSantis will be doing a town hall on Fox January 9th. Uh, that'll be Brett and Martha. He'll be over in Iowa. A caucus he hopes to win. It'll certainly be a close second. So here's more of my interview with Ron DeSantis, uh, the 46th governor of the state of Florida. Governor, I just want we got this cut from the campaign trail and I wanted to ask it to you anyway, but this is how it sounded a couple of days ago when one voter asked you about being tougher on Trump. Listen. Why haven't you gone directly after Polls are down. He's, you know, up really. What do you mean by going directly after? I mean, in, in my viewpoint, uh, you're going pretty soft on what, what, But what do you think? So, you know, because we, I've articulated all the differences time and time again on the campaign trail. I know. I just, I think that there's just a narrative that, I think the narrative is this. I think... What the media wants is is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. So is that part of the reason that people said you should have been tougher on Trump? I personally have noticed that people are tougher on Trump. You risk alienating his supporters when you got to win them over. Chris Christie, who I'm very friendly with, and I think so are you, uh, he goes directly to Trump. It has not helped him in the polls. So it's... So but it's got to be here's tactical. The issue that, Brian, I, I, I like Chris, too, but he's he's trying to attack Trump personally. Uh, and that just doesn't work. Our Republican voters don't like that that mudslinging. What they do respect and what I have done consistently is point out the differences. He elevated Fauci. I fought Fauci. He didn't fire Fauci. He should have. He I, I stopped BLM riots in my state. He didn't do anything when the cities were burning in Minneapolis. He was tweeting. We talked about uh, things with the debt. He added seven, eight trillion to the debt. I've cut the debt in Florida by 25 uh, percent. We obviously cut taxes. So did he. I did universal school choice. 
He didn't pursue that nationally, even though guys like me, you know, were telling him to do it. I also, uh, he won Florida by three. I won by 20. Uh, I can serve two terms. Uh, I'll be able to get all this. But, oh, he didn't do the wall, of course, and have Mexico pay for it. Uh, And then he's promising things like massive deportations, which he promised in 2016, and he deported less than Obama. So I've been talking about this throughout the whole campaign. I think just the liberal media Mm. don't care about any of those issues. So they they don't report on it. The best way to hold people accountable is to be able to be on a debate stage with him where you can hash all this out. And he's refused to debate. He doesn't answer questions from voters. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, this is something that, um, that he should do. I think, uh, I think it'll ultimately hurt him on caucus night. And I think it'll ultimately hurt him on right. primary night in New Hampshire uh, because, you know, he's got, he certainly has a hardcore support. But, you know, in the polling people put out, a lot of those people are more fluid and, and I think it is going to hurt him. I mean, he owes it to people to get up there and, and respond to these questions, and he's not been willing to do it. So on the real clear politics, he's got a significant lead over you. Today in a new poll of, um, of GOP leaders or county captains, it looks like he's got 37. Haley's got 16. you got 9%. Uh, he's leading you. You're in second in Iowa. Uh, you're third or fourth in New Hampshire. Uh, do, you, uh, do you not believe the polls, or are you saying that, uh, things will change from here on in. Ryan, in the a, a poll of county leaders throughout the country. I don't know what that that is not how it goes. I mean, you know, individual voters actually decide these things. And so, you know, we're going to actually be in a situation where people are going to be able to vote uh, starting on the 15th and the 23rd in, in, in New Hampshire and going on from there. County you know, chairs, that's going to bring the clarity. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never seen just such a reliance on the polls. I think it's created a narrative um, rather than reflecting opinion. It's trying to shift opinion. And look, I ran in 2022 and I was very critical of the polls because I had polls saying that I was in the uh, you know two, three point race with my Democrat opponent, uh, four or five points, even two weeks before. And I won by 20 and we knew we were going to win big, uh, but that was just not what was reflected there. So I think there's been an over-reliance on it. And when you're not talking about the underlying issues, how do you shift the sentiment? You shift the sentiment by having contrast uh, about the direction of the country and about the different issues. And there's been very little of that, of course, because he hasn't been willing to debate and whatnot. Um, But I can tell you this. Uh, you know, we have a tremendous organization here. We've got great energy. These are people that are true believers. Tens of thousands of people have committed to caucus for us. We have uh, 1,500 plus precinct captains ready to go on caucus night. Right. This is how you do this stuff. So, so we've been kind of, kind of notes to the grindstone. And, and historically in Iowa, this right. is just a fact. Uh, the polling has not done a good job uh, predicting uh, the final results. Um, and so I think that people uh, are going to be watching on caucus night, um, and I think that they're going to they're gonna be uh, pleasantly surprised. So uh, we're talking to uh, Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, Governor, I, I think that you heard, you might have heard, that the Senate and House are working together and doing some substantial, uh, substantial uh, border enhancements uh, when it comes to asylum, when it comes to this, this whole probation thing, the parole. Uh, And if it is significant, somebody like Congressman Troy Nails came out and said, I'm not going to give Biden a win. If they come to an agreement on this, even if it makes the border better, I'm not going to give Biden a win. Is that the mindset that you had in Congress that we should have in Congress? Look, I think the issue on this border is, is this going to be Lucy with the football? You know, Charlie Brown coming down and she pulls it away because we've talked about deals with this for many, many years. And once you look under the hood, 
it's usually something that won't get the job done. So the House has a piece of legislation, H.R. 2. That will get the job done. So if they're able to do H.R. 2, you would do it. Uh, and I know people like people like Chip Roy have been pushing this, um, other folks who are real strong conservatives. But what I would not do, it has nothing to do with Biden, what I would not do is do some type of performative stuff where you sprinkle a little money uh, without really doing. You need to tie Biden's hands on this. This border should be closed. That is his responsibility, and he's not doing it. And so my fear would be he would agree to something which would ultimately not solve the problem. If it's not going to solve the problem, they have got to say, no, this problem needs to be solved. And I support the Republicans putting their foot down, being very strong when it comes to this. Here's the thing. You know, Brian, and what people are talking about in New York, you have people everywhere, even liberal voters are like, this just can't happen country we have to get control of this situation understood so the president's got a myriad of court cases coming up and his polls drop if he's convicted on any of them it doesn't matter what we think of them or the audience thinks of the cases if he's convicted it changes would that influence how long you stay in the race regardless of the distance between you and him i think it's less that but i think republican voters should factor this in Here's the reality. The Democrats want 2024 to be all about a referendum on Donald Trump and a referendum on these legal cases. And look, I've been critical of Alvin Bragg and, and Merrick Garland and all that stuff. And, and I think that that's, that that's appropriate to be critical when you have politics involved in this. However, uh, I think the reality is, is that this is going to be very difficult uh, to run a campaign under that. Uh, do we want to put the future of the country and the Republican Party in the hands of a Washington, D.C. jury that's like, likely to be a, a all-stacked Democrat jury, I don't have confidence uh, that that's going to come out well for any Republican, uh, much less Donald Trump. So I think as voters look at this, and I've made this case in Iowa and will continue to make it, uh, Donald Trump is a high-risk candidate because of all the things that can happen. The reward, I would argue, is low because he'd be a lame duck president on day one, couldn't serve two terms. I think he'd have problems getting personnel. Whereas me, I'm a low-risk candidate. We've shown how it's done in Florida, uh, and I'd be able to serve two terms, be able to deliver on all these promises in a really, really big way. If the election is focused on the people's issues and Biden and the Democrats' failures, we have a great chance to win. If the election becomes a referendum on Donald Trump, criminal trials in January 6th, that is playing into the liberal media's hands. That's playing into the Democrats' hands. And unfortunately, I think the Democrats would end up uh, winning in that situation, and that would be a tragedy for the country. Have you spoken to the president since he, you've started running against him? No, oh, because he hasn't come to any of the events. I mean, okay. I'd love to uh, ask him how, how, his, how his golf game's going, some of that stuff, but he's got to show up to these debates. I do think this, though, Brian, I mean, you know, if he underperforms in, in Iowa uh, in these early states, he may have to start debating. But I think even if you're somebody that is, that is all in for, for Trump – Don't you think we want candidates to step on that stage and prove that they can handle it? You know, I was willing to debate Gavin Newsom, who's their their star Mm -hmm. recruit, and we were able to handle him because we have the facts on our side and conservative policies work. You ought to be willing to step on that stage and defend your record. So, Governor, I know Mitt Romney ran, didn't get the nomination, got it the second time. John McCain ran against George W. Bush, didn't get it, got it the second time. Uh, it's not unusual to run for the nomination, come back again. If it doesn't work out for you, you're not even 50. 
Would you, in your head, is this the last time you're running? This is the time for the country. I mean, I, you know, how you plan these things, that's never been how I've been because I'm not really running to be somebody. I'm running to do something. And I view 24 as a pivot point for America to where we've got to get this done and we've got to do all this stuff. And so that's been my focus. That's why I'm running. Um, and that's why uh, we need to be able to win. Um, and so, so we just take it one day at a time. I've never been somebody that has kind of planned out like, oh, I got to be here for this or here for this. And it's not how I roll as governor. I just did the job. I want a big election victory. I wasn't doing anything. Then after the midterms, I looked and I said, look, the Republicans did poorly. Trump's candidates did poorly. We did very well. We have the formula for success. Um, and so that was part of why, you know, I thought that this year uh, was, the, was the right year. So, so we're uh, excited that finally people are going to be able to vote. I mean, you know, you do this for a living. So there's a lot of punditry and I get it. But, but ultimately, mm-hmm. when Americans get to vote, that is, gotcha. that is what, what's going to happen. So I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I just want to thank everybody in Iowa right. who signed up for us uh, January 15th. We want your support. And the last question, you've been on a roll. I mean, you run for Congress, you win. You run for governor, you win twice. You know, outstanding college career. You go serve in the military. I talked to your commanding officer over the weekend. He couldn't say nicer things about you. Is uh, it been tough right now not being first? I know the game hasn't started technically. But the campaigning has happened. How have you handled, well, look, Brian? I but but in those in those elections, I was always the underdog in every election I've ever been in. That's nothing new for me. Um, and you know, none of these things are necessarily easy. There's always different uh, bumps in the road, and you just got to be able to navigate it. I mean, I think when you get into a presidential campaign, um, you know, there's things you can control, and I and I can control. You know, I'm going to go do well in this debate. I'm going to go well. Going to go visit all these cities and answer questions from voters. I'm going to work harder than anyone. And then there's things you just can't control. I mean, you know, I can't control, you know, if the New York Times writes a hit piece with anonymous sources that are made up and that try to make us look bad. That's just what happens. And so you just got to roll with the punches, focus on what you can control. Um, And ultimately, um, you know, all the stuff's in God's hands anyways. And so uh, we're working hard and we'll continue to do that. And through all of those things, one of the reasons why I've been an underdog, but the success ultimately followed uh, is because I have a strong work ethic and I do outwork people. And so I think as a president, that's someone you want. We see what happens when we have a president now who's on vacation most of the time. It doesn't work out well. Uh, I'll put nose to the grindstone for the American people. you got a one-on-one debate just like you had against Gavin Newsom. Now you're going to get a formidable opponent, Nikki Haley. Will you watch tapes? of past debates or past exchanges? I don't know that I'll do that. I mean, I think that this is a strong contrast uh, between uh, a candidate like me who really represents the values of uh, Republican voters nationwide and and somebody like Nikki, um, who's just taken positions and has has a record that's more in tune with, um, you know, more of the insiders in D.C. and New York. Uh, and that's not what Republican voters, um, you know, ultimately are going to go for. So I think we'll be able to show the contrast there. I think we have a very significant contrast in records in terms of achievements. And then I think we have a contrast in terms of core conviction. So we'll see all that. It'll be good. You know, two hours on a stage when when it's one on one, you just get more time to talk. You're going to be able to hit most of the issues, I think, that voters really are concerned about. And we have committed to doing debates after the caucus in New Hampshire. So I think we have one, the the 
three days after the caucus that we've committed to. Um, you know, if you guys at Fox want to do one, I obviously would be would be interested in, in doing that as well. And then I'm sure we'll have some debates scheduled in South Carolina as we start to move down there. And you do this interesting thing where you don't need the podium. I've never seen that before. You just kind of like you spring it on. No notes. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, best of luck out there. Thanks for your quality time. Happy New Year, Brian. Take care. Same to you and your family. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Back in a moment. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, I think it's time to get out there. Uh, the, we've had our holidays. We've, the, the, elect, the campaigns are beginning now. This is when people will pay attention. And I think that the president, again, I have always said to members, people don't vote for you because you deserve it. But what you have done gives you the, the uh, legitimacy to say, this is what I will do. His message is about what we need to do as we go forward. Mm -hmm. And freedom gives us that opportunity. The kitchen table issues are our motivation and our mobilization. So that was Nancy Pelosi on CNN. What's the big deal? This is what I think is the big deal. You know, they used to say, what do you get to Trump? Uh, Because he had people around him and he's the president of the United States. Was to go on television. And to get your message across, because he watched a lot of TV, he's always reading stuff, and he's always uh, trying to get a different angle on things. And he always says, well, you know, let me put, put the sound out. Let me hear this. The same thing with Joe Biden. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi, with all her access and all her power, has trouble getting to the campaign. So if you look at Joe Biden's campaign, it is all about Roe v. Wade and Donald Trump is the devil. Donald Trump is Hitler. Donald Trump will end democracy, become a dictator, not leave office. They say it various different ways. Now we're 10 months out. They're already saying everything. Today, Joe Biden, I, I think is going to be, yeah, today is going to be at Valley Forge, the birth of democracy, the birth of the union, the revolutionary army, the, uh, George Washington's tough winter. We have to weather the storm and fight off Donald Trump. They, he wants that image. He wants the image of Wild West and racial animus. That's why he's going to the site of a 2015 shooting at a church in South Carolina. And January 6th, he's going to be uh, marking it everywhere he can as a solemn day, the worst day ever. And Donald Trump will do that every day if he takes power. And Nancy Pelosi's trying to say that's not going to work. In my view, she's saying, tell everybody what you did. Don't say I did a good job and they'll, re- they'll figure it out. They're not figuring it out. They don't feel that way. And you've got to at least tell them. Same thing. They don't communicate. They don't tell you why, she would, why we should support uh, Israel. They don't tell you why we support Ukraine. They don't say what's the danger of not having our uh, reform done to get weapons uh, quickly and effectively over to Taiwan. They're not saying what the recruiting crisis will mean for the future of our country if we don't tackle it head on. They don't never talk. And what he's trying to say is she wouldn't even mention Donald Trump's name, but she's trying to get to him. Meanwhile, uh, following up with the Ron DeSantis interview. He's a little frustrated, yes, but he thoroughly believes, in my view, that it's a lot closer than anyone knows. And he believes, I tried to get him on that question, I look, a lot of people run for office, and they don't win the first time, and they win later. Ronald Reagan lost to Ford, came back, got the nomination, became president twice. John McCain lost to everybody, 
uh, and excuse me, lost to George W. Bush, was losing to everybody, came back, got the nomination, lost to Barack Obama. Mitt Romney lost, came back, got the nomination, lost to Barack Obama. I mean, it happens. Sometimes you lose. And then you come back. George H.W. Bush lost to Reagan, got on the ticket, came back and won the nomination and won the presidency. So even if he doesn't win, uh, Ron DeSantis is not even 50. Far from done. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. All right, from 48th and 6th, Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, around the world. Soon they're going to be taking the tree down. Maybe they were taking it down yesterday because they put huge blocks in the street. Either that or the president was doing the Tonight Show uh, right across the street from us. Rockefeller Plaza. Our tree's better anyway. It's the all-American Christmas tree. You don't have to worry about watering it. It's dead uh, and never real. It's not like it lost life. We was, I was able to throw my tree out, just so you know, on garbage day. Got it down Wednesday. And I feel like I can truly look forward to 2024. Uh, this uh, hour, we're going to be talking to Shannon Bream and Jeff Lax, that Cooney Law Professor at Kingsborough Community Cooney Law Professor. He focused on Kingsborough Community College and founder of SAFE, which is an acronym uh, which advocates for the Zionist Jews uh, against Zionist Jews uh, discriminated against and excluded on college campuses. Now, that might be an important organization. It's never been more important. And we also want to talk about the the radical power behind all these crazy protests in New York City and why it's national news. They're shutting down bridges, stopping people from getting to Kennedy Airport, stopping pilots from getting there. You're talking about world commerce, these guys, because they are pro-Hamas. It's not even Palestinian, pro-Hamas. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. I can confirm that on January 4 at approximately 12 p.m. Iraq time, U.S. forces took necessary and proportionate action against Mushtaq Jawad Kazim al-Jawari. The strike also killed another Han member. It is important to note that the strike was taken in self-defense. Yes, uh, because we got hit about 60 times in Iraq by Iranian militias, and now we took out their leader. Uh, that is uh, Major General Pat Ryder. Finally, returning fire. U.S. forces take out Iranian-backed militia leader. He is now dead. How many more attacks have to happen before we kill the rest of them? We'll discuss it. Number two. I've never seen just such a reliance on the polls. I think it's created a narrative. Rather than reflecting opinion, it's trying to shift opinion. And look, I think there's been an over-reliance on it. Uh, by the way, that was a excerpt from one of my brilliant interviews with Governor Ron DeSantis last hour. Uh, Shannon Bream will weigh in on that. Uh, 2024, it ain't over. It's just beginning. Just keep in mind, not one primary has been decided. Just polls show the president winning. We'll discuss what Kimberly Strassel wrote in today's Wall Street Journal that should give DeSantis and Haley hope. Number one. The numbers are extraordinarily large. This is something that we are seeing throughout the hemisphere. We have increase in authoritarian regimes. We have more extreme weather events that are driving people from their homes. Yeah, make it up as you go along. Alejandro Mayorkas looking at impeachment, the border heating up. He spoke to Brett last night. Not many people would even in the White House probably feel better about that conversation. But I believe that they're on the fast track to coming up with a deal or at least something the House is going to look at that might just pass with the majority of support amongst Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. 
Democrats have been forced to come to the table. It's one of the rare times Republicans have almost all the leverage. Shannon Bream, anchor of Fox News Sunday, uh, chief legal analyst, uh, uh, Fox News' chief legal analyst and correspondent, best-selling author. Shannon, welcome back. It is great to be with you. Happy New Year. The same to you, Shannon. I know that you have Senator Langford on because he did not commit to us because he committed to you. What? How dare he? So if you want to relinquish him back, go ahead. This is your opportunity. Not going to happen. <laughs> Sunday morning when he comes on, we're hopefully going to get the very latest details on where these negotiations are going in the Senate. He's the lead GOP negotiator. But you got this whole problem with what, if anything they get done in the Senate is actually going to be able to pass in the House. And now news this morning that the Speaker wants to negotiate the House side directly with the White House. So there's a whole lot going on and not a lot of things getting resolved as Congress stands at a 19 percent approval rating. That doesn't even make much sense. Does the speaker talk to Senator Sinema, uh, to Senator uh, to, to Senator Langford, to talk to Senator Murphy? I mean, it doesn't even make it's it shows a total disorganization because well, to, because Senator Mullins of Oklahoma, his job is to brief the House on the negotiations. And he says they've been receptive. Is the speaker not getting that message? Well, I think that there are a lot of different problems going on here, potentially conflicts, because even if the speaker is involved with any of these conversations getting briefed on what's happening in the Senate, he knows what will or will not pass muster in the House, and he's got a very tiny majority over there now. They want H.R. 2, which is a much tougher bill the House has already you know, passed, basically, on party lines, that they think what comes out of the Senate is not going to be anything like that. And he's got to convince these you know, members of his caucus and a majority of the House to actually vote for something. So I think he wants to hedge his bets and go directly to the White House based on, hey, what what I'm hearing out of the Senate, maybe I can't sell to my men and women over here in the House GOP. Well, listen, uh, you're right. Uh, we've been watching for the last two years. The, the Republicans can't agree with each other on anything except for they like chaos. They don't pass much. And if they don't understand that their majority couldn't be slimmer, now down to two seats, Mm-hmm. And they're down in the Senate and they don't have the White House. They should just check because it's written up in the papers almost daily. Uh, they should understand that if you don't compromise, you get nothing done. And we still get thousands streaming in on a daily basis. Yeah. And on top of all of that, can they even compromise on funding issues, like even deciding what number they're going to shoot for, what that's going to be the baseline for the budget? Because, you know, January 19th and February 2nd, we have two potential government shutdowns coming. That as they are fighting over the border in Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan and the funding for all of that stuff. So they've got a very deep to-do list, and there's going to have to be compromise on both sides or none of that is getting done. And, you know, who benefits from the chaos? you got to ask yourself that question in an election year. Yeah, I mean, I think we got to do uh, right away is see what they come across, because we know Border Patrol uh, just adding more to Border Patrol agents and adding some money. It's, that's what Chuck Schumer says, and that'll do nothing. But changes to the rules on asylum, rapid return when you come in, that would make significant detail, uh, significant help almost right away. Uh, what about just getting rid of catch and release? It's no longer possible to release somebody and say, I'll see you in nine years if you're not eligible for asylum. And one of the things that was brought up to me is that people come to the border and they say, I fear for my life. Okay. Why are you coming to this country? Why don't you go to another side of your country? Maybe you can go around the block and not fear for your life. We need documentation why you legitimately fear for your life. Not that you like our country better. Everybody likes our country better. These little things could mean the entire difference. They could, and... 
The question is whether the White House will move, whether Democrats will move on any of that stuff. Now, they know that the optics are terrible. It's not just Fox now that is taking note of what's happening at the border. And there is pressure on this president to do something. His poll numbers are terrible on a number of things, the economy, on foreign policy, but they really are on border security as well. When we got people across party lines in the polling saying that they think there is an emergency at the border, because it's not just staying there, as you know, these, you know, Governors like Texas Governor Greg Abbott, they take heat for sending people further north into other parts of the of the country, but it's gotten attention. It's gotten other cities like New York and Denver and Chicago and others to say, yikes, we can't handle this influx, and Texas is saying, welcome to our world. So the conversation is there. You've got Democrats calling out the White House, publicly calling out the president. you got to get something done. That coupled with his poll numbers, I think there's real motivation for the White House to actually compromise on some of these tough issues. Yeah, I want you to hear a little of Brett's interview last night. Mayorkas, let's listen. Cut four. Is it more than 500,000? More than 1 million? Oh, 2 million? Uh, uh, Brett, it's, it's, more than, it's well more than a million per year. Would it be surprise you to hear that CBP sources say that currently they are releasing more than 70% of the migrants crossing every day, and sometimes more than that number, higher than 70%? Would that surprise you? It would not, uh, it would not surprise me at all. I know the data. And I will tell you that when individuals are released, they are released into immigration enforcement proceedings. They are on alternatives to detention. And we have returned or removed a record number of individuals. We are enforcing the laws that Congress has passed. He went on to say 70 percent of the people get to stay. So you might be expelling mm-hmm. people only because you're setting records about people coming to the border. Exactly. So it's, if you're setting record numbers coming in, they're at historic highs. Even if you, yeah, you're expelling a percentage of them, it's because the numbers have gotten so high. And what Republicans are going to argue, as you talked about, Democrats in the White House say we need money. And they say we don't need money for processing more people in. We need actual policy change. That's the only thing that's going to change these numbers. So it's going to get exciting. Week and a half, we're going to find out about uh, what's happening with the Iowa caucus in New mm-hmm. Hampshire. We're going to find out who's dropping out. And this week, there's also going to be a town hall with the two leading contenders, uh, Haley and DeSantis, and then the other leader, Donald Trump. So I'm wondering how much is in the balance and how much we can expect. Shannon, I think there's a real danger for Republicans and maybe voters who think that the polls mean something. They mean a trend and maybe a sentiment. But nothing's been won or lost yet. Right. Uh, it's, it's, it is still spring training. Yeah. I mean, this is now where the rubber meets the road. You and I have been talking about this for two years because that's what we do. But for a lot of people, what happens in Iowa, we've, the first sort of measurement for them about people, you know, we're going to go, we'll be there in the gyms, the churches, the town halls where people show up, they debate for hours, they hear from people, they actually put pen to paper and write down the name that they want in the caucus. And what happens there will be a psychological, will have a psychological impact on everything that follows because for a lot of people who are trying trying to you know, get their kids to school and keep food on the table and keep their jobs, they are not into the minutiae of what's happening. But that headline out of Iowa will, will make a lot of difference for them. We Everybody assumes that President Trump, if the polling is true, is going to run away with it. But DeSantis has put a lot of expectations, his team, on this. Does he come within striking distance? Does he get surpassed by Nikki Haley, who then goes on to a good showing in New Hampshire? I mean, this is now where it actually matters, and it will impact what the rest of the world thinks about how they're going to vote. Shannon, uh, I think the President Trump is, hasn't done it yet, but this is the story. He actually is meeting with the Teamsters president uh, next week. And we know the Teamsters went with Biden and are not with him yet. 
and they are more than happy to meet with Trump. And that's a big win for them, too. So they could have maybe the other guy would have uh, given them the stiff arm or the Heisman. But Trump also says, I'm going to be a player in Minnesota. I want to expand the map in New York. I might even do an event at Madison Square Garden. I love that approach because I think we just give up on uh, each party states. I've, you know, red guys don't want to go to blue states and blue guys don't want to go to red states. I, I hopefully uh, Trump starts making people, you know, uh, I guess remake the map. Can you imagine if he picked up a major union endorsement? I mean, that would be so bad for the White House because um, President Biden has always talked about being the union president. So for President Trump to go to his constituencies, he's picking up numbers with black voters, with Hispanic voters, with young voters, places where Democrats and where President Biden has felt very comfortable and felt like those things were locked down. If he inches in also into the union territory or to other unconventional places that haven't worked for Republicans in the past, that's a real nightmare and a, and a headache for the White House at, you know, when polling is showing things as close as they are head to head. Yeah, I, we'll see. We'll see what happens, uh, and we'll see what how the president's going to withstand. The former president's going to withstand the attacks that say that he is against democracy, will be a dictator, uh, half devil, half Hitler. That's really what Joe Biden's running on. That, and it seems like the abortion decision. Do you think, from your research and your legal background, that abortion will matter as much in the midterms as it uh, in this election as it did in the midterms? It may. Listen, there are a lot of states that are trying to get it on the ballot, so it then turns, you know, voter turnout from the left to show up and vote. There's going to be a big fight over this in Florida, so we'll have to see. But even when it's not technically on the ballot, as was the case here where I live in northern Virginia, and um, the entire state legislature was up for election, there was no abortion measure on the ballot. But every single ad in northern Virginia was an abortion ad. So Democrats feel like it works for them. They're going to keep talking about that. You mentioned the president's going to have this speech today where he's going to talk about that he's sort of the protective net, the the safeguard against democracy falling apart, against you know, what he would argue is what you would have in a second Trump uh, term. They, they're not good, like I said, on the issues. The people, the American people are wary of them on foreign policy, on immigration, on the border, on the economy, on everything. So they have to turn to these other themes that have worked for them in the past. So we'll see. All right. Uh, Shannon, who's on your show? Well, as you mentioned, Senator James Lankford is going to come. The lead negotiator on the border deal was happening. We're also going to have Governor Abbott with us to give us the reality. And um, he's facing several new lawsuits from the DOJ and Eric Adams. We'll talk about those. And I should be able to de- announce our Democrat guest momentarily. Check the socials for that, but just about locked in. Okay. In other words, you're not, you want to save for another show or you don't have it yet? I have it, but you know how the you go through all of these levels of, okay, now you can tell the public. Oh. So we should be just minutes away from locking that down. Bill Clinton? Um, we asked. Okay. What did he say? You'll have to tune in to find out. I think he's in Mexico. Did he say yes? Did he show up? Hey, yeah. we, can, we can send satellite trucks to Mexico. We can do an interview from there. The Epstein list is kind of interesting. A bit of a throwback. Very. We're going to talk about it. All right. Uh, go get him, Shannon Bream. Stay within yourself. See Saturday night. All right. Saturday night at 9 o'clock, she helped me promo. Uh, that's One Nation. Meanwhile, I, if I, I want to see you in person, and you must want to see me in person, 
Uh, why wouldn't you? Uh, it shouldn't just be Pete and Eric who get to see me every day. I'll get to see you on the 21st. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you can go watch Fox Nation or see me there in Joliet, Illinois. com. It's my wood. It's how I win the war in history. We're doing it a 1,000 people at a time. A couple of tickets left. So I want to see you in person with the VIP that I get to talk to you before the show. This, uh, it's all about Teddy and Booker T, too. You'll get to find out about those two great Americans and how it set the table for where we're at right now. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From his mouth to to your ears, ears. it's Brian Kilmeade. I should have said slavery right off the bat. But if you grow up in South Carolina, literally in second and third grade, you learn about slavery. You grow up and you have, you know, I had black friends growing up. It is a very talked about thing. We have a big history in South Carolina when it comes to, you know, slavery, when it comes to all the things that happened with the Civil War, all that. I was over, I was thinking past slavery and talking about the lesson that we would learn going forward. All right. I still don't understand her answer during a dead week in the news a couple of weeks ago, but she still gets questions about it. And, of course, if you're running against her, you're going to bring it up constantly. Uh, And she has no history of being racist. She's no history of being racially insensitive. So it was just an odd answer, and she's still explaining it away. Chris, listen on WDBO in Orlando. Hey, Chris. Hey, Brian. Real quick, she should have a real one-sentence answer to that. Thank God the Republicans won the Civil War. But I was calling in regards to specifically – Democrats and the Republicans' inability to be effective in taking advantage of the Democrats' mistakes. They gave us a layup with the woman's choice or abortion in the midterms. They're giving us a slam dunk right now at the border. See, I don't know if people really realize it. But what do you mean the slam dunk on abortion? Do they just message it incorrectly? Because most of the country seems to be pro-choice. Well, I believe that we, sh- we should coalesce around a woman's choice to a certain point and leave it in the Weak. state's hands. But we still allow people to say the word abortion right up front. The Democrats wipe, our, wipe us senseless with it constantly. But they're, they're being really, you know, they're giving us the best thing we can have right now at the border. You know, those who are affected right now is our schools in low-income areas, food from inflation because these people, you know, immigrants need to have food. Housing is expensive. The core of the old Democrat Party is being affected by the Democrats' policies, and why can't the Republicans say it? They've allowed the progressives over the last five years to take over their party at the expense of where their core and their base was. People who are disabled, people who are on welfare, people who are working class, they're getting demolished by the Democrats, not the Republicans. Got it. Uh, Chris, appreciate your passion. You're always well-read. And, of course, uh, Chris understands what these next 10 months are going to be like. A lot of emotion. And the, and tactics could rule the day. And the, the game plan could rule the day. And I don't think Donald Trump's going to be caught flat, get flat-footed on the Dobbs decision. Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Do 
believe they are chanting for Yemen, where the Houthi rebels are. They're not even control of the government, but they have the dominant power in Yemen. That is not Yemen. That is in New York. That is a woman named Nardine Kiswani, a.k.a. Nardine Moshan, who has been leading the protest and co-founded Students for Justice in Palestine. I thought to myself, who is she? Does she even want to be in America? What is her background? Why is she banned from going to Israel? Jeff Lax is a Cooney Law professor at Kingsborough Community College and founder of SAFE. It's an acronym on campus which advocates for Zionist Jews discriminated against and excluding, uh, excluded on college campuses. Uh, Jeff joins us now. Jeff, welcome. Always great to be with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, you're one of the few people maybe not surprised that this woman, Nerdine, was leading these chants against America and against Israel. Not surprised. This is the same woman who held a cigarette lighter up to a man, on a sub- black man, by the way, on a subway, wearing an IDF sweatshirt and said, I want to burn you, and held the, the flame. It was in the, I think the New York Post covered it a couple of years ago and said, I want to set you on fire. I wasn't even a Jewish guy, just wearing an IDF sweatshirt. This is a woman who um, used language that was so harsh that a Jewish uh, passerby got beaten up at her rally about a year and a half ago, was hospitalized. This is someone who is a mentor to Fatima Muhammad, and they work together on all these things at CUNY Law. And this is also a woman who, at CUNY Law School, harassed and and just absolutely um, embarrassed and bullied a Jewish student to leave the law school, and, and she was courageous enough. Her name was Rafaela Guns, and you can Google her. She came out and told the story about how this group that was led by Nardine Kiswani bullied her out of the school, and she wasn't even – she was Jewish. She wasn't even so much of a Zionist Jew before she got there. They just hated her because she was more neutral on Israel. And she still got talks about how she got bullied and she left the school and she's not a lawyer today because she went to, I think, social work school because she had to get out of there and they kind of ruined her her career. So who is she? She went, I understand, to CUNY. She sat to CUNY Law School. She graduated in 2022. She, uh, yep, she graduated in 2022. She gave the commencement speech there and made some vile comments during that commencement speech, as as probably wouldn't surprise you. Um, she's made, you know, you know, she's made, you know, many river to the sea type genocidal comments uh, while calling Israel a genocidal state. Um, and she's been going at it ever since. And and this is, you know, CUNY Law School is, I, I think, has got to be the worst incubator of this type of hate in the entire country, because they have actually the faculty of CUNY Law School. Brian, I always blame the faculty. Students have the right to be idiots. I always say that. And you're supposed to learn when you're a student. I mean, you know, what I know now compared to what I knew as a student, it's incomparable. And I'm sure most people would agree. The faculty at CUNY have adopted BDS as their policy unanimously. So the students adopted it first. And listen, does that bother me? Yes. Do I think they're bad people? Yes. But again, they're students. But then the faculty took the same resolution, and they and they adopted boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is an anti-Semitic movement and happens to be illegal in the state of New York. And they adopted it as their policy. So when the faculty do that, they are setting they set the policy for, for the law school. What do you expect to happen? Of course, you're going to graduate Nardine Kiswani. Of course, you're going to graduate Fatima Muhammad. Of course, you're going to lead to this kind of a hate. 
So I want you to hear a little bit more from Nardine, Cut 37. This is in October 2021. We don't need tons of thousands of people to shut down and disrupt this city. And as long as Palestinians are facing genocide, as long as Palestinians are resisting colonization by any means necessary, we must do the same here in New York City. We have to up the stakes. Wow, so she, uh, this even was before October 7th, that's her belief. Now she's absolutely militant. Yeah, gen- Israel's committing genocide. So in, 19, in, in 1948, Brian, there were 156,000 Arabs in Israel. Today, there are almost 2 million Arabs. So if Israel's committing genocide, they are the worst genocidal committers in the history of the world because the Palestinian population has exploded um, in Israel since 1948. And the opposite is true of of Jews. You know that there are zero Jews, Jews, Brian, in Syria? There were 40,000 in 1948. There are zero in Libya. There are seven Jews in Iraq. There were 150,000 Jews in Iraq in 1948. The only people who is having genocide and ethnic cleansing committed against them are the Jews. There's not a Jew in Gaza. Can you, do you think you can find a Jew in Gaza? It's like, where's Waldo? You're not going to find It's easier to find Waldo than a Jew in Gaza. So, so the whole thing, and we're talking to Jeff Lax to give us an idea of where these protests came from. They shut down Bell Parkway. And if people listening around the country don't know it, there's really only one way to get to JFK Airport, the busiest airport in the country. And they stopped 60 flights, basically. Flight attendants, pilots, people all coming off vacation. They just put, put all their trucks. She organized it, it seems, the organization did. And they just slowed it down to a to all-out stop. And does because, it surprise yeah. you she's able to put together this type of organization? No. And because they are not really anti-Semitic, they're anti-Western culture. They're anti-American. They are supported and funded by Marxists. And I see it up close and personal because I work with these people. The people behind this are the huge unions. It was interesting that you were just talking about the Teamsters. That's a little bit different kind of a union. But mostly these academic unions are flat out the, the most extreme people you can imagine in the country. They are true, uh, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Marxists, and they are funding this. I always tell people, look at the bottom of the signs at all these rallies. Don't look at the big language on top that's, you know, basically lying about Israel and about Jews. Look at the bottom. The bottom line in small letters, it'll have the name of a Marxist organization and a, web- and a website very often because the Marxists are funding this. They have so much money, these unions, and they're funded by Marxists. So I'm not surprised at all. But people have to understand, this is, yes, it is anti-Semitism, but it's not really anti-Semitism. That is just the start to it. This is anti-Western culture, anti-America. These are people who want Marxism, truly, truly want it. So um, this woman graduated. Uh, is she Palestinian? She no, she was born here. She was she was born in America. Um, not clear what her background is exactly. I, I, I certainly think there are a lot of questions surrounding what exactly is her background. I, I, it, it, there are questions. There, there are questions about that. I, I have questions at least. But she was born in America. Um, you know, but she certainly has some type, some type of an axe to grind with Jewish people. There's no question right. about that. And, and she has a lot of people that believe what she believes because they're able to block bridges and airports, uh, smoke bombs into, bombs into Macy's on a heavily policed New Year's Day. I want you to hear what she said in July of 2021, Cut 36. 
And everyone cheers. She wants to hear pop, 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 the last thing that some Zionist hears in their lifetime. I, I would rank that as one of the three worst things I've heard over the past couple of years, and that's saying something. Um, I will tell you that I had a conversation with a student who she bullied out of CUNY Law School, and what she told me was fascinating, Brian. And uh, it's, it's not— Go it's ahead, not, tell uh, me. Share it. Uh, she told me that uh, she was in a class with Nerdine Kiswani at CUNY Law School, and Nerdine Kiswani had no interest whatsoever in the material being taught in the class at all and would go off topic talking about her agenda and how, how terrible Israel is and how terrible the Zionists are. And the professors would allow her to do this, and the students would applaud and cheer her on. And that's one of the stories behind why the student felt so bullied, because she didn't feel she even had the power to speak up on the other side, at least to be neutral about it. Um, and so in these classes, they don't really even cover the material, according to this student. They're not even learning the law in these classes. And, and Nadine Kaswani was, can, can, you, can you imagine in a law school, not even in a college, these are law professors, you know, the top of the academic field, and they're allowing this student to control the narrative of their classes. That's what was happening. So why are they bowing down to Nadine Kaswani? It's really interesting, and I think it really deserves, you know, some type of looking into an inquiry. All right. Uh, since Fatima Muhammad made news for her uh, offensive commencement address in 2023, here's a little of it. Uh, cut 39. The self-serving interests of CUNY Central, an institution that continues to fail us, that continues to train and cooperate with the fascist NYPD, the military, that continues to train IDF soldiers to carry out that same violence globally. A larger institution committed to its donors, not to its students. May it be rejoiced in the corners of our New York City bedroom apartments and dining tables. May it be the fuel for the fight against capitalism, racism, imperialism, and Zionism around the world. So that's the commencement address speaker selected out of all the graduates to reflect the, the thoughts of this and the beliefs of the students there. What an embarrassment to the country. Can you believe that you would even think that, let alone give that speech and be selected? Absolutely not. And what's even more shocking, Brian, is that CUNY had a copy of that commencement speech before she gave it. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been doing this a long time. I've been there 20 years. CUNY does not allow commencement speech to happen unless the administration reviews it. They reviewed that commencement speech, and they saw all those lang- all that language, and they allowed it to happen. And her calling for rage against capitalists, in that speech she calls for rage against capitalists and Zionists, tells you all you need to know. Rage against yeah. capitalists. And that the relations of, of Fatima to Nardine? So they're, they're buddies. They, they do all these rallies together. Uh, I believe Fatima spoke right after Nardine at the rally two years ago where uh, a Jewish passerby was beaten up shortly afterwards. Um, Fatima, a couple of days ago, uh, made, I think, the worst comments I've ever heard, uh, saying over and over, death, death, death to the Zionists, not only overseas, but here and everywhere. Yeah, in That's fact, we have that. I'll, 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 let, let's listen. Cut 38. It will disturb you today, tomorrow, and every single day. 
Venomous woman who's got to be an embarrassment to an institution, but yet they're proud of her. Obviously, uh, she speaks for her. She's a, C- a CUNY law grad and leading activist. She's not yet a lawyer. She is not. I, I looked it up. I did not see her on the bar admission page yet. And so if I'm the ABA, I'm watching this very closely. If I'm the New York State bar, I am watching this very closely. Calling for death, death, death. She said it over and over again in that speech to Zionists here in America. So I, I listen to that and I say, I, you know, you have to meet when you pass, even if you pass the bar. Let's say this woman is intelligent enough to pass the bar, which I, I highly, highly doubt. But let's say she is, and then she has to meet with a character attorney. You have to actually be evaluated for your character to be a member of the bar. And, you know, when I remember that interview when I had it. I was very nervous. You want to come off nicely. And uh, I certainly never said anything like that. And for her to call for death to people based on their religion, ethnicity, belief systems, here, right here, I mean, she should never be a lawyer. And I hope people and, – and, and by the way, CUNY School of Law is under investigation subject to a complaint that my organization brought – Safe campus that by adopting and implementing the boycott divestment uh, sanctions uh, resolution and by imp- implementing it as policy, they are under state investigation because that violates a New York statute. You're not allowed to have a discriminatory boycott. That, that violates New York law. Mm-hmm. And so they've been under a serious investigation by the New York State Division of Human Rights for over a year, has been going on. And again, I asked them to listen to this. Listen to what this school graduates. Death, death, wow. death to Zionists. Jeff, thank God you're doing this. You're doing the research. And, and now all of a sudden, sadly, it's the major story uh, in, the, in the world, obviously, in many sectors. And that is Israel. Uh, the October 7th massacre on them ends up being an elixir for their enemies. And Jeff Lax talks about it. We got to just shut down that Cooney school. Unlike others at Harvard and others, it doesn't seem like they have an alumni that's angry about it, nor do they need it to exist because they're city funded and state funded. Jeff, thank you. Thank you for amplifying it as always, Brian. All right, go get him. Jeff Lax, thanks. When we come back, final thoughts. And I see the calls up there. I'll try to get to all of them. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. He's saying to black America particularly, we can't make it without dependency on a larger society. We don't have what it takes to do that. And so our protests, our moving, trying to move forward and advance in society is based 
on our faith in on dependency of, of white to white Americans and to institutions. And not all, in, in what's heartbreaking specifically is Reverend Al's refusal to acknowledge the power within black America that has lifted us, sustained us to this point. Uh, and to ignore that and talk about what some white man with a lot of money did breaks my heart. He should be ashamed of himself. And he's talking about uh, Al Sharpton protesting in front of Ken Ackerman's uh, building. He's a billionaire, self-made billionaire, graduate from Harvard, who took on the Harvard president, wanted MIT president to resign, hasn't yet, is the University of Pennsylvania president, can't believe the anti-Semitism that rised up. But Sharpton's protesting him for ousting the president of Harvard because she's a black woman. Not because, not because the University of Pennsylvania woman was fired or she quit or was tossed by the board because she did not condemn anti-Semitism, obviously, couldn't decide it as a hate crime. But she was caught plagiarizing dozens of times. You look at her background, it is paper thin. She probably never would have got the job, it seems, without being a black woman. And that's been called out. But just focusing on the plagiarism and her testimony, she's ousted. And he claims it's because billionaires decide to take their money out. It's all of it. Donors are abhorred by what's happened on that campus. But he sees race. And that's where he is. He's not protesting anti-Semitism. He sees race. And that's where 80-year-old Al Sharpton spent his afternoon. Incredible. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you want to see me on stage, and I know you do, uh, we have a great show, Winning the War in History. Uh, in a fun, entertaining way, just go to BrianKilme.com and Juliet, Illinois will be uh, the last one with Teddy and Booker T still available now. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.